The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And then would you please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, we're going to be uh, actually in chapters 4 and 5, kind of looking at both chapters this morning, but Ephesians, chapters 4 and 5. We are still in our series on sanctification. We're still working through this topic. We have set aside the summer to do a series on sanctification, and so we're nearing the end of that. Summer is almost done, which is kind of a bummer, right? But uh, we are nearing the end of our summer series, and yet there's still a few topics that we would like to address as we finish this series out. This morning, I want to draw our attention to the sanctifying influence of marriage. And I want to take some time this morning to just help us understand how God sanctifies us through uh, the marital relationship. God uses a number of things to sanctify us. He uses trials. He uses His Word. He uses His Spirit using the Word. He uses prayer and obedience and confession of sin and the church and relationships in in the church and the one another's. And all of that goes into God's milieu in which He sanctifies us. And God also uses marriage to make us more like Christ. There are many, many purposes for marriage. Uh, There are many reasons why God has ordained this wonderful institution. He has ordained it for companionship. Uh, That is one purpose. He's given us uh, a spouse, in many cases, uh, for us to enjoy and to have a fellowship with and a friendship with. Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he created woman to be a helper uh, to man, to be a companion to man. He also designed marriage for procreation, for the purpose of having children and having families. And as God said to Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's, that's part of God's purposes for marriage, is to have a procreative element and have families and children. He's also designed marriage to be a comprehensive partnership where you become one flesh in your relationship. Genesis 2.24, you remember God says that a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God has designed the marital relationship to be that where you actually become theologically and emotionally and spiritually and socially one. That's how God sees you in your marriage. He's also designed it for the physical enjoyment of one another. He's designed there to be a physical element to that marital relationship, for husband and wife to enjoy that part of the marital union. And all of those purposes are are used by God to bring Himself glory and to promote our spiritual good. And in all of that, God has designed marriage to be a sanctifying influence, It's all meant to culminate in us becoming more like Christ. God has designed your relationship, if you're married, your husband and wife relationship to be a place where God is working in each other's hearts to soften out those rough edges and to promote your character, to promote your maturity, and to conform you more and more into the image of Christ. A lot of people don't think about this going into marriage. We've sat with many premarital couples, and we've talked about why they want to get married and what they're excited about and what they're looking forward to, and rarely is this ever on the list. We don't think about this part of marriage, and yet marriage is designed by God to make us more like Christ. We might even say that it is a fast road or a fast track to sanctification. And the reason for that is because when you put two people together in such close quarters, you're going to begin to see each other's faults. You're going to begin to see each other's failures and weaknesses and sins. And anytime you put two sinners together in that kind of a close relationship with one another and the demands of work and children and all the demands of life and each person entering that marriage with some expectations and some thoughts and some desires about what it should look like and the conflicts that inevitably arise in the context of that relationship, in the midst of that, Your sin is exposed and the cracks in your character are going to be revealed. And so marriage is a place where God shows us the places that we are unwilling to die to ourselves. Marriage is meant in a part by God to, to reveal to us our shortcomings and our sins. And 
That's been the case in our marriage. Uh, That's been the case in my relationship with my wife. And I look back in the first year of our marriage, and it was hard. It was rough. It was difficult. There were fights and disagreements. I I, I never knew what a sinner I was until I got married. I'm sure I wasn't a sinner before that. I mean, there's no way I could have been. I'm kidding. But marriage has this way of showing you areas of your life that you may not ever see if you're not married. doesn't mean you can't be sanctified and be single. I'm not going to say that. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But marriage is a means by which my sin has been exposed in the context of marriage. And I am so grateful 25 years into this that God has used my wife to make me more like Christ. And I can say after 25 years of marriage, God has used her mightily to make me more like him, to sanctify me and to reveal to me the areas of my life that needed to be grown in. And so every time we do premarital counseling, we talk about this. We we hear about the wonderful things that they're excited about and the things they're looking forward to, but we also get to this point. At some point in our premarital counseling, we say, you have to understand that when you are married, you're going to realize that God is doing something bigger here than you ever could have imagined going into this thing. That God is going to use the person that you're holding hands with right now to show you areas in your life that you've perhaps never seen before that you need to grow in and need to work on and need to become more like Christ. And God is doing that work and wants to do that work in the context of this marriage for as long as it lasts. Marriage forces you to face character issues in your heart and your life that potentially you'd never see. I like what Renwriter says. He says the... The real transforming work of marriage is the 24 hours a day, seven days a week commitment. This is the crucible that grinds and shapes us into the character of Jesus Christ. And I think he's right. That marriage, this wonderful institution, is actually a crucible in a sense where God is pounding out and working on those edges of your life where they're a little sharp yet and he wants to grow you and sanctify you through your spouse. So as the elders were talking about a series on sanctification back a couple months ago as we were kind of talking about what our church needed and what series we would have this summer and how to frame that series up, one of the things we talked about was this very thing. We said, we, we need to do some stuff on marriage. And we need to speak about the sanctifying influence of marriage. And the reason we wanted to take some time to do that as an elder team was Because we're not naive enough in thinking that there's not some marriages in our church that potentially could be struggling. We hope that's not the case. But we are very aware of the fact that in a church, even our size, there could be some marriages that are struggling. For some of you, your marriages are doing great. They're healthy. They're sound. They're solid. There's some normal uh, issues in life that come. There's some normal sin that occurs in the context of that marriage. But overall, your marriage is thriving and yet for some of you, perhaps you're here this morning and perhaps there's conflict and there's, there's not harmony and there's not peace and there's not humility and there's not repentance and there's not forgiveness and there's not this granting of one another uh, kindness and there's harsh words and there's days of not speaking to each other. And, and we are very aware of the fact that that potential is a very real thing here in this church. And we want to do everything we can to see marriages thrive. And so we thought it would be helpful to do a message or two on this this topic. Let me take just a moment to talk to you singles. Some of you are here and you are singles. Uh, You're single. uh, You're not married. And the last thing I want to do is to communicate to you that if you're not married, that you're not going to be sanctified. I do not ever want to communicate that. There are many godly people who have been single for much of their life. I'm thinking maybe of Jesus who was a pretty godly man, who was single, and Paul. So it's very possible to be single and and be a godly young man or woman. And so please don't think that I'm suggesting that that you must be married in order to be sanctified. God, God can use a number of other things and a number of other venues and means by which he can make you and will make you like Christ. However, if you are here today and you are married, then you need to understand that one of the primary means of your sanctification is sitting right next to you. God's going to use your spouse to show you areas of your life that you need to grow in and mature in. He's going to show you the areas that you need to become more like Christ in. 
And I'm convinced that most marriage problems, listen carefully, most marriage problems are not truly marriage problems. I think most marriage problems are character problems. That's not to say that there's not some issues that that need to be dealt with in the marriage context, and, and that's important from time to time, but marriage problems are oftentimes an indicator of a deeper problem, a lack of holiness and a lack of character in a certain area of a person's life. And so marriage problems may reveal a lack of sorrow over sin. That's a character problem. And marriage problems may reveal that one or both spouses are unteachable. That's not a marriage problem. That's a character problem. Marriages may reveal a a refusal to forgive or a lack of kindness in speech or a lack of genuine humility or a a lack of willingness to consider others more important than yourself. Those aren't marriage issues in particular. Those are character issues. Areas of sin in your life that need to be honed and perfected and sanctified. So I'm convinced that many marriage issues are simply the reflection of a lack of holiness in a person's character. And so I want to take you to Ephesians 4 and 5 to prove that point to you. And I I want to show you that God intends your marriage to be a sanctifying influence in your life. And I want to do that first by taking you to Ephesians 5 and then taking you backwards to Ephesians 4 to show you the prerequisites that Paul gives before he gets to chapter 5. And I believe that Paul is being very specific in his order of the events in which he describes these things in this book. And I believe there's a reason Ephesians 4 comes before chapter 5. So let's start first by going to Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 23, and then we're going to work backwards. So let me read those verses, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. You know these verses well. These are perhaps the most famous verses in the whole Bible on the responsibilities of a husband and wife in marriage. And Paul is very clear here. He says, wives, you need to be understanding that your role is to support your husband, to help your husband, to uh, understand that he's the leader of your home and to come under that and to submit to that. And husbands, you need to be the ones who understand that your leadership is not a domineering leadership or a harsh leadership. It is a servant leadership. And so that's why he says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's sacrificial love, husbands. And then he goes on to say in verse 26 that your love should purify her. That's a sanctifying love. And then in verse 28 and 29, he talks about this love that you have for your own body is the same love that you should have for for your wife. That's a sensitive kind of love. And so these are the roles that God gives within the relationship between a husband and a wife. And it is the context of those roles that God has determined there to be sanctification. In fact, I want you to notice, look at verse 25. Let me help you see and show you the the parallel between the sanctifying relationship within a marriage and the sanctifying relationships within the church. Verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's talking here about the marriage and the husband as to the function in his role that should result in the sanctification of his wife. And then in verse 26, he draws a parallel between Christ and his relationship with the church. Look at verse 26. He says, 
so that he, not talking about the husband anymore, but Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Listen to that language. Cleansing, purifying, washing, no spot, no wrinkle, holy, blameless, sanctifying. This is what Christ does for his bride. Christ loves the church so much that he is watching her and causing her to be sanctified, to cleanse her and to purify her. And marriage is to be the same way. Your marriage is to be a place where sanctification is taking place, particularly in how a husband loves his wife and in a wife's relationship and response to her husband. And what's the result? The result is that there's a spotless, sanctified bride. And so there's a parallel between the church and how Christ loves his bride and between how a husband and a wife function together. There's to be sanctification in both of those places within the marriage context and within the church context. Now look at verse 32. What happens when husbands and wives commit to this? He says in verse 32, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Meaning when your marriage functions this way, It becomes a picture of Christ and his marriage to the church. Your marriage, when it functions like this, when it's a sanctifying relationship, your marriage then becomes this giant arrow that points to the marriage of the lamb with his bride. That's the way God has intended it. And so there's sanctification that takes place within the church. And there's sanctification that needs to take place within the context of marriage. Here's the problem. Now listen carefully. The problem is each and every one of us have operating within our marriages this barrier, this obstacle to sanctification, and you need to understand what this barrier to sanctifying relationship in the context of marriage is. It is sin and selfishness. It is my selfishness, it is your selfishness, the chief obstacle in your sanctification and my sanctification in the context of marriage is selfishness and pride and sin and impatience. That's why someone has wisely said a good Christian wedding always involves two funerals. It always involves two funerals, the death of a husband to his desires and passions and sin and the death of a wife to her sinful desires that she brings into marriage as well. And so, it is critical that we understand the sanctifying influence of marriage and what God is wanting to teach you through your marital relationship. And I want to show you that by going back to chapter 4 because Paul gets to chapter 5 through chapter 4. In other words, there are some things in chapter 4 and the early part of chapter 5 that are brought to bear upon what Paul says about marriage in chapter 5. In other words, there are some prerequisites that you need to have in place described in the earlier part of Ephesians that needs to characterize your marriage before you can begin to function and follow the roles as he's defined them in chapter 5. Look at how he begins chapter 4. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Here's the, here's the, the call at the beginning of chapter 4 to be a godly person, to walk in the manner in which you called, to be a godly man, to be a godly woman. Look at verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That has to be brought to bear upon your marriage before you get to chapter 5. I don't think it's coincidental that Paul has chapter 4 and all that's in it in the beginning of chapter 5 before he comes to the marital instructions at the end of chapter 5. So in other words, you've got to be following the principles in chapter 4 if you want to have the kind of marriages described in chapter 5. In other words, we could say it this way, marriage is never about finding the right person, it's about being the right person, about being a godly man, about being a godly woman and bringing that to bear upon your marriage. And so with that, that's kind of a long introduction. Let me give you five lessons, five things that God is wanting to teach you through your marriage. 
there could be many, many more of these. We're just going to pull some of them out of these two chapters. Five things that God wants to teach you through your marriage. Five ways He wants to sanctify you in the context of your relationship with your spouse. We're not going to take a lot of time on each one of these, but we will look at them briefly. Number one, the first thing God wants to teach you in the context of your marriage is to slay your anger. To slay your anger. Go with me back to chapter 4, and I want you to notice in verse 17 that he begins to continue this theme of the Christian's walk and this theme of holiness and godliness and humility and conducting yourself in a way that honors the Lord. Verse 17, he says, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. And then he goes on to describe, you did not learn Christ in this way, verse 20, if indeed you heard him in this way and have been taught in him just as truth is in Christ. And then he goes on in verse 22 and says, in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance to the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. And so here's this put off, put on mentality that needs to characterize your marriage. You need to be a person who's constantly putting things off and putting things on. And then he begins to list in verse 25 and following a bunch of these things that you need to be putting off and putting on. One of the first ones he mentions in verses 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Paul here says, if you're going to be a godly man or a godly woman, you've got to slay your anger. You've got to crush that anger. And let's face it, anger has done a lot of damage in some marriages. Angry fists have hurt a lot of spouses, and maybe more than angry fists, angry words have wounded spouses. We could go on to say that sinful anger is a cancer that will eventually destroy a marriage from within. If there, if there is anger present in your marriage, eventually that's going to take a toll on your relationship, and it's going to hinder your sanctification process. And so before Paul ever gets to the instructions on marriage in chapter 5, he deals with this issue of sinful anger. Look what he says in verse 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Does that strike you as odd? Be angry? You understand this is a command to be angry? You understand that as a believer at times you are called to be angry? It's righteous anger. He's talking here about righteous indignation. He's not talking here about sinful anger. He's talking, talking about righteous anger, anger over the fact that, that God is at times grieved over what's taking place. God is maligned. His word is maligned. His word is slandered. When, when we see injustice and immorality and ungodliness, at times like that, we are called to be angry. God's a God of wrath. Christ demonstrated righteous anger when he cleansed the temple. There are times to be righteously angry when we see the kingdom of God being slandered. But I, I would submit to you that most times when you and I get angry, we're not mad because the kingdom of God is being slandered, but because the kingdom of self has been stepped on. Right? I see some of you going north and south. You understand what we're saying? When things don't go our way, when we don't get what we want, when someone interrupted our peace and quiet, when our expectations are not met, Paul says that kind of anger is not to take place. That's why he goes on to say in verse 26, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, meaning you must deal with this kind of anger before the sun sets. You must deal with it quickly before bitterness sets in, before resentment sets in, before animosity sets in, before more unforgiveness and hatred begins to permeate your heart. You've got to deal promptly promptly with anger before it takes root in your heart. Kill it. Slay it. Immediately. Why? Look at verse 27. Because if you don't, you give the devil an opportunity. Unchecked anger in any relationship, but particularly a marriage relationship, actually gives Satan access into your marriage. 
It gives him a foothold to get his way into your marriage. doesn't mean he can oppress you. doesn't mean he can indwell you. He can't do that to believers. But it gives him access into your life. You open yourself up to satanic activity when you allow anger to take place in your life and your marriage. He'll take advantage of that. So God in his grace wants to root that kind of anger out of your heart. He wants to root it out of your heart. He wants to deal with it. He wants wants it not to be there in your heart first and foremost. And so what God oftentimes does is he brings you a spouse to help you see that there is still anger in your heart. And let's face it, marriage is often the place where anger is most easily and most commonly expressed. And so God in His grace, brings you a spouse to point out these angry, sinful tendencies in your heart. He uses this marriage to reveal this sinful anger that is in your heart. And frankly, that's one of the reasons you're married. You know that? One of the reasons you're married is to show you that at times you can still get pretty angry. And God wants to root that out. He wants to sanctify you in that area. And so, you, you listen, you did not marry the wrong person. I've sat in so many counseling sessions with couples, and that idea has been floated, I think I maybe married the wrong person. No, you didn't. You don't like it because your your toes are getting stepped on because you're seeing your anger and you want to blame that person rather than owning up to the fact that 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 anger is still inherent in your heart. You're married to the person you're married to by God's sovereign design to sanctify you in this area and to purge the anger from your heart that is already there, still there. That's one of the things God wants to teach you. He wants to teach you to slay your anger because there's more at stake in your marriage than just your marriage. What's at stake in your marriage is your holiness. And if there are secret pockets of anger in your heart, then that needs to be rooted out if you're going to be the person that God wants you to be. I wish I could tell you this has not been a part of our marriage, but the first year of our marriage, talk to my wife. It was tough. There were times when I was very upset and frustrated and angry, and I responded in anger to her at times in that first year, and it was difficult, very hard first year of marriage, and yet God in His sovereign grace used my wife to reveal this area to me. And I'm still working on it at times. It still rears at ugly heads at times, but God has sanctified me immensely through my wife. He wants to do the same in you. He wants to use your spouse to slay your anger. Number two, there is another thing that the the Lord wants to teach you through your marriage. He wants to teach you to speak kindly. He wants to teach you to speak kindly. God wants to grow you in your speech. He wants to grow you in your words. He he wants your words to be edifying. He wants your words to build up. He wants your words to be something that, that bring joy and calm and peace in your home. But let's face it, marriage is often a place where some pretty mean words are said. Marriage is often a place where some of the most hurtful words ever spoken are spoken. And again, I have sat with couples, I have sat with wives, and I have heard them describe some of the things that have been said to them in the context of the marriage. It's so painful. Criticism, put-downs, humiliating words, vicious, demeaning words, insults, biting sarcasm, threats of physical harm, assaults on character, verbal harassment, mocking words, ridiculing words, those go deep, oftentimes more hurtful than a physical attack. And so preceding Paul's instructions in chapter 5 on marriage are, are these words at the end of chapter 4 in verses 29 and 30. Look what he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see it? Before he ever gets to the instructions on marriage, he deals with the heart that produces these words. And he says, 
both negatively and positively what need to take place. Negatively, he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. On the one hand, you need to make sure that in the context of your marital relationship, in the context of all relationships, there are no unwholesome words proceeding from your mouth. And the word unwholesome is a word that refers to rotten food. Food that is putrid, food that is spoiled. You know how bad that smells. We have found things rotting in our children's bedrooms. We have pulled smoking things out of the bottom of backpacks. Horrible. It reeks. Toxic. Paul says that's what words can be like. They can be so foul and so spoiled that it's repugnant. He says, let your words not be like that. Positively, on the other side, they need to be constructive. So verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Notice you're to put off unwholesome words, and in its place, you're to put on edifying words, word that is good for edification, that builds up, it's beneficial. And there are to be timely words, words that are according to the need of the moment, words that are spoken at the right time in the right place to exactly minister that person in need at that moment. There could be gracious words. Verse 29, so that we'll give grace to those who hear. There are to be words that give a blessing to others, a means of grace to others. So there are to be edifying words, there are to be timely words, there are to be gracious words. There are also to be spirit-controlled words so that you don't grieve the Spirit, so that you don't distress the Spirit whom the God has placed within us? Beloved, do you understand that God wants to sanctify your tongues? He wants to remove the sharpness from your speech, and it just may be that one of the primary reasons God has you married to the person you're married to is to teach you that? You're in language school. In marriage. You ever think about it that way? Your marriage is language school where, where you learn to sanctify your speech, where you learn to, to put off that unwholesome speech and you speak edifying words. So again, you didn't marry the wrong person. You didn't make a mistake. You, you didn't make some horrible mistake at the altar. No, you married the right person. And how do I know that? Because you said, I do. And when you say, I do, you've just married the right person. And God in His grace has given you that person to sanctify your tongue and to teach you to speak kindly. Because when you slay your anger and you speak kindly, you're more like Christ. And that's what He's wanting to do in your life. Number three, He wants to teach you through your marriage to practice forgiveness. Not only to slay your anger and to speak kindly, God in your marriage wants to teach you to practice forgiveness because when you practice forgiveness, you're like Christ, you're like God, and God wants to conform you to the image of Christ, and He wants to conform you to His image, and so it's not ironic or it's not shocking to us that Paul gives instructions at the very end of chapter 4 on forgiveness before he ever gets to his instructions in chapter 5 on marriage. Look at verse 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Notice there's a negative command and a positive command here again. He said, negatively, you need to make sure you're putting off bitterness, which is deep-seated anger towards a person that just burns in your heart. And you need to put off wrath and anger. And you need to put off clamor, which is the, the shouting and the yelling that accompanies those who are in conflict, the, the violent verbal outbursts that come to those who are shouting at one another and letting the emotions fly without any restraint. That's clamor. Slander. That needs to be put away from you, speaking in a way that depreciates someone's character or erodes their reputation. And malice needs to put away from you all wickedness, all ill will. That all needs to be put away from you in the context of all relationships, but particularly your marriage. Look at 
and in its place, look what he says positively, you must be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. In the place of all of the, the bitterness and the wrath and the clamor and the slander, in the place of all that, there needs to be kindness and tender-heartedness and a forgiveness. Why? at the end of verse 32, because God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you realize if you're a Christian what you've been forgiven of? Do you realize what God put up with before you came to Christ? Do you realize what God has done in canceling your sin and granting you forgiveness in Christ? Do do you realize how much God has forgiven you? you. I think sometimes we forget that. We think that somehow we're above that and and we really haven't been forgiven much and we forget the cross and we forget the cost of the forgiveness that has been given to us. And Jesus here through Paul says, you need to remember what you've been forgiven because that very forgiveness you need to extend to others, particularly your spouse. How could you not? How could you not, as a recipient of that kind of forgiveness, withhold your forgiveness to someone you love so dearly? Marriage, I think, is one of the places that we learn the art of forgiveness more than anywhere else. I I have had to ask my wife to forgive me more times than any person in the world. I've had to learn this, and you need to learn this. You you have to learn to extend forgiveness, and you have to learn to ask for forgiveness because it's in marriage that the closest earthly relationships occur. And the people you live closest to are the people you hurt most and offend most and upset most. And so the greatest place to practice forgiveness is in the context of your family, your marriage. One writer says it this way, he says, when disagreements arise, the natural tendency is to flee. Rather than work through the misunderstanding or sin, we typically take a much more economical path. We search for another church, another job, another neighborhood, another friend, and another spouse. But marriage challenges this flight tendency. It encases us with a rock-hard, given-to-God promise that insists we work through the problem to arrive at some sort of resolution. I love that. The natural tendency of the human heart is to flee, go find somebody else, go start over, go, go begin somewhere else because it's easier to start over than it is to ask for forgiveness. And Paul is saying here, no, you must learn in the context of your relationships, particularly in marriage how to practice forgiveness. Because when you forgive, you're like God. And when you forgive, you're like Christ. And God's overall desire in your life is to make you more like God and to make you more like Christ. You understand that's why you're married? I understand that's not top on the list. When you had your list before you were married and your engagement and you had the list of things, I want to do this and I'm excited about this and I can't wait to to find this person to do this, I I almost guarantee you that to practice forgiveness was not on the list. You find that out after the first week of marriage. And then you can begin to practice this and you begin to see the importance and the critical nature of having to be a forgiver. Is that a word? A forgiver, however you say that. You have to learn this. You have to cultivate this. This is fostered in the context of the closest relationship. And perhaps God has you in conflict right now with someone in your home, in your spouse, to teach you to be a better forgiver. They're not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your spouse is the tool God is using you, using to make you more like Christ and to help you be a better forgiver. Are you learning? Are you teachable? Number four, what else does God want to teach you through your spouse and through marriage? He wants to teach you to love like God. He wants to teach you to slay your anger, to speak kindly, to practice forgiveness, but God also wants to teach you to love like God in your marriage. 
And again, it's not coincidental that the instructions Paul gives us here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, come before his instructions on marriage at the end of the chapter. Because it's in marriage that God wants you to cultivate this love. We might even say that marriage is one of the best places, one of the best environments or atmospheres where you can cultivate the kind of love that God calls you to have and wants you to have as He conforms you to the image of Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I love this. Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. Imitators is the Greek word mimetai, where we get our word mimic. Mimic God. Imitate God. Copy God. Impersonate God. Be like God. Be a mimetai of God. Remember the old mimeograph machines? Remember those things back in elementary school that you cranked? This is before photocopiers. They would put this ink, in the purple ink, and they would put the thing in there and then crank this thing out, and out would come this warm, smelly kind of ink purple thing. Remember that? I'm dating myself here. Some of, you, some of you are remembering that. It's a mimeograph from the same word, a copy. Copy God. Imitate God. Be an exact copy of God. Notice it doesn't say here, meditate upon God, although that's good to do, or admire God, although that's a good thing to do, or adore God, although that's a good thing to do. No, Paul says you need to imitate God. You need to copy God. You need to be exactly like God. And how does he want you to do that? Look at the end of verse 1, as beloved children. You want a picture of what imitation looks like? Just look at your kids. They love to copy you. They love to do what you do. They love to say what you say. They love to imitate and, and pattern their lives after you. I remember once when my boys were younger, I was shaving and walked. I was in the bathroom shaving, and I looked down, and here's one of my sons just practicing with, I don't even know what it was, a shovel or something, shaving, you know. He wanted to be like Dad. I remember Emily a number of years ago. She wanted to pray, and so she prayed, and she closed in prayer, and she said, and everyone said, Amen. I wonder where she's heard that. Kids want to imitate their parents. And Paul says, you need to imitate your father. You need to imitate God. In what? Look at verse 2. Walk in love. Notice what he says here. The very thing that he identifies in what we need to imitate God is love. And there could have been a host of other things that he listed here. But he narrows in on love. The the thing you need to copy God in is your love. How? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And again, he draws a parallel between Christ and what he did. Christ loved you. Christ loved you gave himself, Christ sacrificed. He, he not only loved you with a, an emotional love, he gave you himself in an act of love. And it says in doing that, he gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice as a fragrant aroma to God. That's the kind of love that you are called to imitate God in. It's not just an emotional, emotive, ooey-gooey, rich and chewy kind of thing. It's not this sensational thing that you kind of work up in your heart. No, love biblically is agape love, a love that chooses to sacrifice for the needs of someone else. And that's the kind of love that we are called to demonstrate towards each other as we imitate God. We are called to pattern ourselves after God in the way He chose to love as an act of His will. I hear so many times couples talking about, I just... I just fell out of love. We fell out of love. We, we never really loved each other. No, no. What, you, what, what you're telling me there is not that you, you didn't have feelings anymore. What you're saying is you chose not to love anymore because that's what biblical love is. So Paul says you need to imitate God in your love. It's critical we understand that because we're all naturally selfish. Let's admit it. You love yourself. 
You, you love to, to do things that satisfy your own interest. You, you naturally love yourself. It's not natural to love others. It's not natural to love outside of ourselves. Only Christ can give us that kind of heart and change our heart. And only by his strength and his power are we enabled to live a kind of life that loves others in sacrificial choosing as we lay down our personal desires and we love like Christ loved. That's what marriage is for. Let me just say it this way. You are not the kind of lover yet that God wants you to be. You have not yet learned to love the kind of love that God has commanded you to love. And the same thing is true for me. I, I, am, I have not learned yet how to love in the way that God wants me to love. This has to be cultivated. This has to be fostered. This has to be learned. And few situations test your ability to love like this more than marriage. So again, one of the primary reasons you are married is, is to teach you to love like this is to teach you to, to have a sacrificial love even when the emotions may not be there or even when the feelings are not there. It's most likely that God has you married to the person you're married at the stage you're married right now in your life, in your marriage, to teach you to be a more consistent lover in the pattern that God has laid down for us in Christ. You have more work to do. I have more work to do. God has to do more work on my heart. God has to do more work on your heart in this area. And so you're married to the right person. You didn't make a mistake. Number five. One last thing that the Lord wants to teach you through your marriage, and there could be a host of many others, but number five is he wants to teach you to walk in the Spirit. He wants to teach you to walk in the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, look down just a few more verses as we get closer to these marriage verses. Verse 18, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Marriage provides one of the best atmospheres for you to learn to walk in the Spirit rather than your flesh. In your marriage, you are doing one or the other at all times, nothing in between. You are either walking in the flesh or you are walking in the Spirit. Those are the only two options that you have in your marital relationship. You're either walking in the flesh, meaning you're living by the dominating power and desire of your fleshly emotions and desires, or you are walking by the Spirit and He is controlling you. And anytime you have a conflict, listen, anytime you have a conflict in your marriage, it's because one or both of you is walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Julie and I have had our fair share of disagreements and conflicts over the years. And we, 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 a few years into marriage, just we had a conversation. We said, you know what? When these things happen, it means that one or both of us is walking in the flesh. And so I keep waiting for her to recognize that she's walking in the flesh. <laughs> keep waiting for her to respond. And finally, I just, you know, humble myself. No, I'm just kidding. It means that something is not right. Some, someone is being dominated by their flesh rather than by the Spirit. And so it's not, it's not um, ironic that verse 18 in chapter 5 comes before verses 22 to 33. You, you need to be walking by the Spirit. You need to be controlled by, directed by, filled by, led by, moved along in your Christian life by God himself through the Spirit, which involves a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, dependent attitude upon the Spirit as you're allowing him to control you as you read the Word, as you pray, as you confess your sin, as you're, as you're meditating on the truths of Scripture. All of that goes into helping you be a person who walks in the Spirit. And marriage is one of the best places for you to determine whether you are or not. Marriage is one of the best atmospheres for you to determine whether you are walking in the flesh or the Spirit. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your spouse is the one, the tool that God is using to help you see and understand when you're dominated by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. So don't take it out on them. Confess your sin, make it right with your spouse. Admit your faults to the Lord and begin to walk in the Spirit once again. 
So those are just a list of five things that God wants to teach you. It's what he's wanting to do right now. It's what he is wanting to do today in your marriage. It's what he's been doing all along, and you have a choice. You can either be humble and teachable and submit to that and be responsible and and allow God to work there, or you can continue to fight that and resist that and reject that. But if you do, you're going to see continued conflict, and you're going to see the sanctification process in your marriage stifled. So which one are you? Do you see your spouse as that gift from God to grow you and sanctify you? Marriage is not easy. Marriage takes work. And by that, I don't mean it takes work to figure out who's going to do the dishes and who's going to clean the house and who's going to get the kids and who's going to get dinner on the table and how to get date nights and how to figure out your work schedules. I'm not talking about that kind of work. That's part of it, but marriage takes work. And when I say that, I'm talking about the gut-wrenching, soul-sin-crushing work that humbles you and sanctifies you as you lay your life down for someone else. The hard work of learning to love when it's difficult, of learning to forgive when you don't want to, of learning to speak kindly when the words are on the tip of your tongue, of of staying in conversations that are hard, of looking for ways to serve your spouse. That's the hard kind of work that marriage involves. And in the midst of all of that, God has wanted to grow you and sanctify you and make you more like Christ. One caveat as we close. This does not mean that one spouse should let the other spouse sin against them and even abuse them without confronting it. I'm not saying that you, you, you have a marriage where you're being just destroyed in that by the other spouse where you just say, oh, this is great, I'm really being sanctified. We need to talk about that. And so next week, I want to deal with that very difficult topic of abuse in marriage And I want to at least raise the flag on that issue and address it somewhat uh, briefly from the pulpit as we try and get the flip side of this issue. I hope that's helpful. My wife and I will be down in the classroom after this if you'd like to talk about this more. She's graciously uh, volunteered to uh, be a part of that sermon discussion. So uh, we look forward to doing that in just a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words, for this scripture, Lord, which is so clear, so definitive on the fact that marriage is a sanctifying influence, so clear that, Lord, you you want to work, you want to grow us, you want to sanctify us, you want to produce in us a greater level of holiness and righteousness. And I pray, Lord, for the marriages of our church that each spouse will see the other as a gift from the Lord to sanctify them. For those marriages that are struggling, for those marriages where the walls have gone up, for the marriages where each spouse has dug in their heels and they won't budge, oh God, soften hearts. Bring repentance and promote sanctification for their good, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.